0: Hello, and welcome to The Reconstruction, a show about moving capital toward justice. I'm Monique Gagan, Managing Director of the Investment Integration Project and Contributing Editor at Impact Alpha. In this series of conversations, I'll be exploring the opportunity for systemic change in a time of great ferment, division, and dislocation. I caught up with Melissa Bradley of 1863 Ventures, who is doing just that. A student of history, her latest venture is named for the beginning of the first Reconstruction in America. Melissa observes this moment in history as a serial founder who has spent time in the finance world and academia, and a presidential appointee in both the Clinton and Obama administrations. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. How are you? Great. In many ways, we are at a crossroads, Melissa. Inflection points, transitions in this country and around the world. Here in the United States, one of those is a renewed awareness of collective power particularly in the social movements that have gained steam in the last decade or so, which have accelerated since 2016. And great strides were made to get out the vote and elect progressives, including men and women of color and white women to office in recent history. Yet I've heard you say that political power alone won't help America out of the morass it's in. As someone who served in two administrations, I was curious about that statement coming from you. So there's a missing ingredient here. Can you share with us your diagnosis of the problem and what's that missing ingredient if there is one um, that can help set us straight?
1: Sure. So, you know, the reality is that politics are one pillar of a, of society that I think too often, or at least every four years, and sometimes every two years, depending on the election, gets a lot of attention. Uh, But I think if we start just with the U.S. focus, it is clear that the political leadership and state of elections is oftentimes depicts a very divergent picture than Wall Street and the capital markets. And we certainly Uh saw that in the midst of COVID and everything else, a massive explosion of the capital markets, which just had to scream, something is not aligned. When the majority of Americans are not well and, and the markets are doing well, something is not right. And it just further exacerbates this belief and I think now true statement that those who are wealthy continue to benefit irrespective of what's happening in society. Those who are historically marginalized and not wealthy continue to be you know, at the bottom of the pyramid, really just stuck with whatever they can get. And, and I think we have seen that uh, with the fact that, again, economy is doing great, but we're clearly in a great chaos Post George Floyd. I also would. So I think there's definitely needs for a discussion on economic pillar. I would also say there's an interconnection. Uh, clearly, when the COVID happened, the Treasury Department came out with the stimulus and then nothing else has happened since. And so it is clear that in that moment with businesses closing all across the country, particularly black businesses closing at a rate of 40 percent. We have to then rely on more than just political power to be able to kind of help and strengthen and fortify the economy. And finally, I would say it cannot be one that only works for a few. It has to be one that works for all. And I think we can't really just wait for political power to decide that. We have to have private sector, financial institutions, innovators really say, how do we course correct this economic deterioration of some and this economic buoyancy of
0: others? So therefore... As a serial founder yourself and a creator of some of these solutions, you've founded businesses, incubators, funds, various levels of the economic pillar chain that you just described. You're also an academic. You've been a political appointee. As a CEO, your personal journey itself is a fascinating one. So in the course of all of these stops along the way, can you share some of the truths you've divined from these experiences for us?
1: Yeah, I think people always say, like, you ha- you've had a lot of jobs. And I would say I have. But I think it's because very early on, I was trying to find that magic wand that would make things better for a majority of people who have been left behind and overlooked. And at first, I thought it was in the financial sector and financial services community. And I worked on Wall Street and I did economic empowerment work and realized there is some movement there, but there are some systemic issues that we face and continue to process Then I spent time in politics thinking that would change. And the reality is, you know, politicians have a great, I would say, bully pulpit. Uh, Legislators have an opportunity to make law. But the reality is that that is not moving as fast as we need to kind of course correct where we've been historically. So I think there's a and and obviously I'm an academic, one, because I really enjoy it. Uh, And two, I think it's an opportunity for those of us who have lived experiences to course-correct some of the textbooks and give a little bit of context of what they're reading because we actually have real-life experience. And so looking at those three, I would say there's literally three things I've taken away. Um, One is that an individual's understanding of the opportunity associated with political power is important but we must understand that it's not just at a national level and everybody should go out and vote every four years. It's every two years and locally, because there is both a top-down approach to the economy and a bottom-up approach. So I think that's first, that everybody has to be actively engaged consistently and not just Uh when it's in their own best interest. I think the second thing is, is that uh, unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand the structure. So when PPP came out, people were like, do I call the treasury? Do I call the Fed? Do I call the SBA? Do I call my bank? And it was actually all of those folks. And so I, I think the other lesson was that people, particularly business folks, I mean I, I wrote a piece, as you know, that really talked about fiduciary duty, and I think that many folks, particularly those who have a lot of money, just assume it 's always going to be there, and for those who don 't we 're always too busy scraping to try to get it, and we don 't really understand how systems work. So I do hope that this is mm-hmm. an opportunity in a moment to be able to understand how the system works, so they actually know how to insert their political power, where to intervene who are the right people to call and what are the right things to ask for. And then I think the final thing is, is that we are all hashtag work in progress and that (laughs) the world has changed so dramatically. My mom is 92 years old. And she said some things have changed and some things have remained the same. And obviously, 92, she's speaking about the tremendous amount of racial unrest. And what Mm. she says, it's actually been exacerbated because of social media. And so the final thing Mm. I would say is that people need to understand history in some cases so that we don't repeat it where it's been bad. But in other cases, we understand the progress we've made. And we're working from the same starting point of what's that next opportunity or what's that next leapfrog? I think- in light of this being called Reconstruction, I think people just have completely forgotten about it, right? That, and, and certainly with the election of President Obama, people said we're in a post-race era. Well, that was clearly not the case. We were in a, I'd say, race-igniting era. And I do think it's important that people understand history to know what laws have been created to allow for equal opportunity, <clears throat> what barriers still exist and how to do those, and where have we found opportunities of coexistence uh, and, and, I would say, equitable, well building and wealth creation in communities because we've seen it, albeit isolated in pockets like Tulsa. Uh, And so it's important that we're not starting from scratch because unfortunately, you know, I think I'm getting too old and we don't have a lot of time to lose. (laughs) And so we really need to figure out how do we understand history to build the momentum that's been created.
0: Well, that tees me up very nicely to my next question, actually, because it's about history here. Um, Partly what we're trying to do is bring awareness, but so is your name of 1863 Ventures. so, I mean, the year was the Emancipation Proclamation, but why call a venture fund accelerator the name that ref- re- harkens back to 1863? Yeah, I think because we've been always
1: focused on the new majority, uh, pretty simply black and brown. It was important for, I'd say, two to three reasons. Um One, I'll be honest, because everybody was a number and a name, and that seemed to attract people. And I said, Mm. well, if people are going to be attracted to a number, let's give one that's of significant historical context. So that was one, I think, just to raise awareness. Unfortunately, I cannot tell you how many people go, what happened in 1863? And I'm like, oh, okay, good starting point, (laughs) good starting point. So I think one was just really to raise awareness and consciousness around that moment in time as we had 1571 and 1776 and a bunch of others. Um, The second reason was, particularly for Black and brown folks, as a reminder, Reminder, um of what our potential is. I think too often on a day-to-day basis we are downtrodden, we are beaten literally and figuratively, and we oftentimes forget the opportunity that was unlocked in the Emancipation Proclamation. Granted, everybody did not know until 1865, but the signal effect that was created, I think sometimes we lose that. uh, And it was worth reminding. And then the, the final thing is I actually believe this is our chance. Even before, unfortunately, the death of George Floyd, when we started this four years ago, we really wanted to signal and reclaim our opportunity as black and brown folks to really create wealth. And that was very much linked to the demographic shift that, was expected for 2044, but is certainly moving faster and some states have already turned. It was a great way to, again, reclaim our power as a community of color, but also to signal to the world, we are very clear about what we can contribute and let's really take that opportunity to huddle up, but also create a bridge and a conversation around what is the opportunity for black and brown folks to contribute to the overall economy.
0: So I'm just gonna ask one follow-up is related to, you mentioned new majorities earlier and you mentioned the year. 2044. For those who don't know the significance of those two statements, can you just just clarify that a little bit? Sure.
1: So demographically, we have, I'd say for the past four or five years, seen the births of non-white children way outpace those of white children. And so what you have seen now is that there'll be a demographic shift that you will have more Americans who will be non-white than ever before. The three fastest growing groups are Latinx, African-American and Asian-American, last I checked in that order. And certainly within certain age spans, like 18 to 24, Latinx automatically already Mm -hmm. outpaces non-white. And then in certain states like California and Nevada, you already have what I call the new majority, where the number of non-white individuals far exceeds the number of white residents.
0: So that might be a truth that many people aren't actually prepared to embrace, understand. That's a shift for businesses and those who are both serving in terms of thinking about consumers and investors and all the different ways those majorities might show up. So I've been thinking a lot about truth and readiness lately, personal, collective, societal, <clears throat> national narratives of meaning. And you're even just flagging the 1863, what we know and don't know, what are facts that are shared and what are truths that are might be different from facts, especially in the last four years. And so You've been one of those people out front, a leader ahead of so many different curves. How have you gotten comfortable with managing truths and readiness of the various listeners and and, and groups that you speak to or present, um, categories of actors in our society? And how do you manage and how should we potentially think about managing those tensions as these demographic shifts happen as well? Yeah, well, I think you've
1: nailed it. I mean, there's the truth and there's, are people really ready? Um, And I'm beginning to find that people aren't really ready. Um, You know, I started this kind of idea of new majority, like I said, about five years ago, and people were very uncomfortable. Uh, And I said, look, I'm not here to make anybody feel uncomfortable. I actually have decided instead of what I used to do, and I think many do, which is not a bad thing, but it wasn't working in the audience, I was, of using stories and narratives and successful ones and twos of different races that have been successful i said let me as a finance person let me just take a data-driven approach so i like to deal with numbers and i like to deal with dollars and that's real and and so i've Uh, truths have been just grounded in data. Now, part of the challenge, though, of of really creating a holistic story, I think I've been successful in talking about this new majority in terms of demographic shifts, the new majority in terms of entrepreneurships, African-American women are starting businesses faster, Latinx fastest growing, 40% decline in white businesses. I think we've got a good handle on the narrative of of black and brown entrepreneurship. But there's a lack of data, which, you know, sitting in the academic world has been highly noticeable in saying, how you know, we've got a couple of chapters, but how do we make the book come together? Because there's really some data that's missing. And so for me, the, the truth is in the numbers of what we know, where there are gaps in terms of data, for example, uh, you know, what is the average size of a Black business? You know, because we have not historically in some of these data sets tracked by race. We try to then pull anecdotal information. So I think truth, it needs to be, one, defined as something that can be supported either by data or other evidence, as opposed to what people make up and just because it's on Instagram doesn't make it <laughs> factual. Um, and then I think that the truth then should lead the narrative. I mean, I think we live in a world right now, certainly being here in Washington, D.C., where narratives oftentimes are nowhere near grounded in truth. And so I try to be mindful, and maybe this is the academic part, that if I'm going to say something, I'm always thinking, do I have a citation to go with it? Because as a woman of color, as a gay woman of color who is talking about the new majority wealth creation, I consistently face like, well, how do you know what who says? So I feel like I just walk around with a list of citations. And I will say the beauty is is that there's more truth that's available. Post George Floyd, the number of reports by McKinsey, by Deloitte, I mean, you name it, everybody he's done some kind of study, Um, I think that that is extremely helpful, that at least it is there. Readiness, to your point, is a different issue. I think some people will never be ready. Um, We just came off of a rally here in the district uh, where the Proud Boys and others came, and they completely defaced two of our uh, well-known Black churches. And that's because they're not ready. Um, and my mom said, you can't get people ready. You just have to keep going. So I think that I have already seen post George Floyd, several allies come along and now kind of a light bulb goes off of both. I see it like they saw what was happening. I can read about it. There's tangible data. Now they're beginning to lean into it. Um, but I think there just needs to be, you know, those of us who feel it and know it to rely on the numbers and the data continue to be in pursuit of more truth and stick with that and not change the narrative and hope that people will come along or not. I I think I, I, it sounds um, feta complete, but I've given up on the readiness piece and maybe that's because mm-hmm. I have kids. Uh, you know when you raise kids you learn something things you just got to let go and so I think I have to let things go because readiness implies a level of comfortability and I think mm. the history of this country does not cleanly or neatly speak to white individuals, not all but some white individuals embracing the fact that they are no longer in control and that is extremely scary. My hope is that the numbers, demystify the process, de-escalate the fear, but that's ultimately going to be up to them.
0: So it's interesting um, because I think when we talk about history, that is one of the things, the backlash and the reaction and the lack of readiness was one of the things that derailed what was really a successful experiment in inclusion in America during that era, which of course you know more than others. And so as we think about what's next and this next normal and the need for truth in it, as well as what else we might need in order to have this more just intersectional normal and really pay attention to your mother's wisdom. You know, some people are not ready for us, but how do we get ready and still keep marching forward like you just described?
1: You know, I I think we just have to be persistent, right? I I think we have to, I think particularly as a person of color, we have to first own our own truth uh, and be comfortable with that despite what we face in the world I find particularly again, having kids. that there is something to be said about building resilience in young people uh, and helping them find strength in times of crisis and adversity. And so I think that's something that. I feel black people are highly resilient, um, but we need to keep that going. So I think that's Mm -hmm. one. Um, I think two is never give up. Right. I I think, um, you know, clearly these last four years have been challenging for a variety of folks in the community, Native Americans, Latin Americans, Latinos in general, black people. Um, And I think that there has been this concerted effort for us to find alignment amongst ourselves. Right. There has been something around capitalism in the history that has said, let's literally divide everybody. Right. Oversimplifying, but you know, slavery, in the South, Native Americans pushed West, Latin Americans pushed Southwest, and there has been this kind of geographic divide. But I think that's where, you know, we joke with the kids, the interweb, uh has allowed that to change. And mm-hmm. so I think we have an opportunity that instead of us individually as nations and as communities fighting for breadcrumbs, certainly post George Floyd, we have come together to find commonality and bonds. My hope is that as communities of color or communities that have been historically marginalized learn how to work together, we can be the roadmap and the examples for other And that this doesn't have to be scary and that there's actually a greater good um, for America. The other, the final thing I would say quickly is that, you know, in having conversations with lots of successful entrepreneurs, the one thing we are mindful of is that black community is really core to black culture. It's not capitalism. Capitalism is not core to our culture. And what I find is that people feel threatened when it comes to capitalism, because when I talk about the power of numbers, they think we're going to take over. Well, I think we already have. I think we outspend and have greater access to disposable income than most people. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have access to markets to create that multiplier effect. But but I do think that it's important that we recognize this is not about displacing. Um, This is really about that for Black people, we are very much about community and we're inclusive. We are naturally inclusive. And so when we talk about a better place for ourselves. We actually are saying a better place for America. Unfortunately, when I hear those who are anti-Black, better America is not having us in it. Uh, So I do think that I hope the holistic frame that communities of color tend to bring, because we recognize how we got here. We recognize we were not born here. We were brought here, obviously, except for Native Americans. But even then, they lost everything, that we're not doing this as a way to cling on to power, but we're trying to figure out how do we create this new normal that we can all move together.
0: It's fantastic. And I think, you know, this idea of thriving collectively, you know, there's some ideas and you kind of referred, referred to that before that have been percolating. You said there's some models that worked. And so when you think about some of the entrepreneurs that you've talked to and some of the people that you've met on your, on your journey, and you think, who's living in 3,020? Um, who's out there already living in this future, literally changing the game? If we could lift them up and find them and, and get them out from under whatever um, area that they're in hiding from us and, and lift them up and amplify them. Who are some of the things that you've seen that really just any number of barriers have prevented it from really percolating through society in a way that would really be rising the tides of all the boats like you described?
1: Yeah. So there's a few people. You know, I think from an entrepreneur perspective, one person that comes to mind is Bee and Sai from Honeypot. Um, They have remained unapologetically authentic to their mission and to their vision. Theirs is universal for all women, but certainly in the backlash that they experienced with the Target ad, They were able to really pull together and leverage the black community for something positive, not just for themselves, but for so many other brands. Mm -hmm. And I would say that both B and Cy are consistently thinking beyond themselves, but recognize they are a marker in the entrepreneurial community for so many others as a well-founded, well-funded startup in Mm -hmm. in the B2C space. Um, I think in the philanthropic community, um, someone like Michaela Davis at Servna has been unapologetic Uh, in her efforts to support Black leadership, uh, Black communities. Um, She obviously was extremely convincing to the board and to her leadership at CERN to do that. Um, The way they rallied around COVID and reached out to all the organization and just gave grants and said, we need you to survive. Uh, We have mental health resources. We have everything. So, So that's been huge. And then dare I kind of project, I am hopeful and optimistic of what, irrespective of what she does, I, although I think it's going to be great, the signal that Kamala Harris is about to be mm. the vice president. Um, like her, not like her, it's a signal effect. Um, and I think a signal effect that she was the first woman to make it through, nothing against Hillary. Um, but I think that is just a signal, not just to her presence, but if you look at all the numbers, so you look at any electoral geek, she is there and Joe Biden is there because of black and brown Americans voting. And I hope that that not just, doesn't just mean we're going to put a whole bunch of black and brown people up there, which is not a bad thing, but it allows people to say we need to be more diverse in the communities we listen to as politicians. And so, again, I don't want to put any more pressure on her than she needs, but I hope there's a signal effect that the the black and brown political power base is paying attention. And then when called to action, we engage, don't sleep on us and don't just call us every four years.
0: <laughs> well, I'm here for all of that. And actually that brings me to every 4 years. Well, that's one aspect, but in time and when these new majorities are have revealed themselves to all in a more material way. What do we need to do now if we are choices and we are their ancestors, choosing and deciding some things that will affect 20 years our children our children's children? How do we get to be good ancestors today? I mean, my favorite author to quote these days is Adrian Mimi Brown. "We are living in the ancestral imagination of others. Who never envisioned you and me having jobs? never mind, you know, being in finance, high finance, other things like that. So, what's your take?
1: I think I think there's a huge responsibility, hence I needed to take a sigh. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that there is certainly, there's multiple layers. I think there is clearly individual responsibility for any of us who have made it, whatever that means. It doesn't mean we're the next CEO of anything, but just that we've made it, that our lives are comfortable. And I think the responsibility there is, one, to pay it forward. But two, also to say it forward. Um, I am always fascinated with my youngest twins who are 13 and they come home and I'll say something, oh, who's that or what's that? And I'm like, oh, my God, what are you learning in school? Or more importantly, what are you not learning in school? And so I do think it's important that only we pay it forward our actions, but we make sure that we maintain this consistent line of historical facts so that we don't go back. If my 13 year old kids or your nieces and nephews do not understand what we have been through because Lord knows how they're teaching slavery uh, in in history classes or not. Um, We need to make sure there is consistency in that narrative so that we don't repeat ourselves and that we understand that. And I think that is up to each of us individually. Uh, And then I also think it's up to the systems that we are part of to really maintain an accurate depiction of history. I think the National uh, Museum of African-American History is a start, but those are artifacts that need to be brought to life with stories and the like. So I think that's our individual responsibility. I think our collective responsibility, particularly I'll just stick with finance is that, and I'm beginning to see it, is that investors are coming together and recognizing that the traditional white investors, I believe many of them, if not most of them, want to do better. But because of the structures that were created in the world of venture capital, they honestly don't know any black people or they don't know where to find them. And so while I have been probably a little annoyed by the thousand calls that I've gotten post-George Floyd, I remain impressed in the collective action that people are saying, we want to do better. We want to learn more. And I respect, it's, it's annoying, sometimes but i respect the vulnerability it takes for them certainly to pick up the phone and call me when when it's pretty clear how i feel about these issues so i've i've been optimistic about that level of vulnerability and i think that that vulnerability is something that black people have all the time we are vulnerable every time we walk out of our houses we are vulnerable every time we get pulled over and i think if people can find comfort in that vulnerability as a collective i am even more optimistic of what the future can bring because people have to be willing to drop their guard and relearn as, in order to reimagine i think so many people have such a narrow take on what has happened and such a particularly in finance ventures investors think there's just like these three things that are why black people aren't getting money i'm like no <laughs> dude it's like three times three thousand um and some of them you have control over and some of them you don't so i think those are individual responsibility pay it forward say it forward collective responsibility to be vulnerable to reach out to talk to make time to have honest conversation and i think you know some. I've said before, we've got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable.
0: Mm -hmm. So what do you need to share that I did not ask directly that you think whoever might stumble on this podcast really needs to just understand about where we are in this world today that um, we should just let them know?
1: You know, I think um, the one thing that resonates and I think it's part of our time, I have um, never met a person of color, black, brown, Native American, that has never said, this country is not ours. Um, you, know, I, you know, my ancestors didn't come here because they wanted to. They came here because they were forced to. Um, James Baldwin has many eloquent speeches around, you know, it is my country, but it is not accept me. And I think if people can stop trying to send us places and tell us where we need to go back to and recognize that we are here, that we have embraced the American dream, although it has not embraced us back that we are resilient and that we're going to be here and that we're willing to fight. We saw when people took to the streets nonviolently. we are willing to fight for our rights and not because we, we fight because we believe it's actually possible. And so I think if people would share in the possibilities, know that I think while the dreams look different, we have a shared vision for a greater America because it is our country, whether we like it or not um, and and not be afraid of that and to really just put fear aside and try to find more commonalities And differences. I find the latest rhetoric, political and otherwise, has been around how we're different. And the reality is, people say, "Well, it's a broken record." Well, sure, because there's probably only five or six ways that we're really different. You know, politically, ethnically, religiously, uh, education-wise, and probably asset-wise. Other than that, we all want people to be healthy. We all want people to be well. We all want people to have opportunity. Uh, We all want people to be treated fairly. Those are pretty basic things. And I think if people would stop assuming we're fighting for something bigger and we're fighting for the takeover and just realize we're fighting for everybody to have equal access to the American dream, I would like to believe that that then would create a level of understanding, mutual respect, and a little bit of vulnerability so we could advance our current conversations.
0: Amen. So let's hopefully that those listeners can take that on. Um, and we thank you for your time. It's been a delight to talk to you as always. And I look forward to seeing where 1863 goes. Me too. Thank you very much for having me. The reconstruction is a project of Impact Alpha. The steering committee includes Erica Seth Davies and Carrie Hansen, with thanks to Dr. Jillian Marcel. We have benefited from the wisdom of our brain trust of more than a dozen leaders in the field. And we'd love you to share your favorite quote or mantra so we can share it with the world with full credit. Email us at tr at Impact, alpha dot com. impact Alpha's editor is David Bank and our producer is Isaac Silk. Special thanks to Lenica Little and Cesar Chavez. You can see Impact Alpha's reconstruction coverage at impactalpha.com slash the dash reconstruction and sign up for our mailing list to learn when new episodes are released the reconstruction podcast is free of charge but it's powered by impact alpha subscribers join us impactalpha.com slash subscribe i'm excited by the possibilities ahead and leave you with a quote from dr martin luther king we must accept finite disappointment but we must never lose infinite hope